With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast for your weekly uh, ruminant thingamabob, audio G-file, floor wax or dessert topping. Still not clear about all that. Um, Today I'm doing this a little different. I'm actually sitting in my car. Um, I couldn't do it from home for complicated domestic reasons. And... um, and it's been a bit of a dickens of a time finding a place with not too much ambient sound. But I'm in the parking lot of the Church of the Little Flower off Massachusetts Avenue in uh, Bethesda. I think it's Bethesda. Uh, near Washington, D.C. For those of you interested in location. Um, and uh, you may hear the occasional kid going by on a bike screaming or um, birds chirping or a basketball bouncing. And you'll just have to deal with it. I'm sure Caleb, our um, audio uh, uh, disciplinarian, will be cross with me. But uh, such is the burdens he has to bear when um, I'm one of the suits. So anyway, um, it's been another week of all of this. And um, I'm not going to talk very much at all about the COVID stuff. Um, I'll just, you know, get it out of the way really quickly. Um, Sounds to me that Trump's plan um, for getting the economy back open is utterly defensible, sober, realistic. Um, I thought that the Trump we saw at the press conference unveiling it was about as good as we'll ever see Trump. Um, I write about a lot of this kind of Trump stuff in the G-File today, so I won't repeat all of it. But, you know, the fact that he is now tweeting, liberate Michigan, and all of this stuff kind of tells you how difficult it is for him to to stick to a coherent presidential line. Um, I got into a spat with Bill Bennett in my column uh, this week. Uh, Look, I mean, I'll just be very clear. I love Bill. I've known Bill for a very long time. Um, He's a mensch. Um, And, you know, back when he had his... When everybody was denouncing him for the gambling stuff, I was one of the very few people who rose to his defense, and I'm still quite proud of the piece I wrote um, on all of that for National Review years ago. Um, and, but I think the way he's, I think his argument here is just very, very flawed, and um, um, and I don't want to get into his motives or any of that kind of stuff. I just think he's making a mistake. Um, I think it's a pretty grave mistake. Um, and I also think, you know, it's one of my main problems is the way he um, pockets 
the revisions downward of the potential death tolls and makes it seem as if those would have happened if we hadn't done the things that he's denouncing. And it just doesn't work that way. I use an analogy in the column to, you know, someone yelling at a firefighter for um, all the water damage that they did putting out the fire in your kitchen and saying, hey, look, only a little part of my kitchen was burnt and yet you soaked my entire house. Well, the whole point is that if you hadn't soaked the house, uh, you would have, um, the whole house would have burnt down. And actually my wife pointed out a, a more apropos analogy would be the, um, the Butterfield effect. Uh, for those of you who don't know, for years, um, Bill and I were on the same side of an argument about incarceration. And I understand that all the conventional wisdom has moved on all of that, and we're in a different phase about, you know, sort of the criminal justice system and letting people out of prison as much as we can, and that's all fine. But there was a time when crime rates were incredibly high, that there was this argument that people like Bill made, he was very out front on it, and also people like um, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, uh, that, as Ben used to put it, a thug in prison can't, uh, you know, rape your sister. The idea was that you could lower the crime rate by putting people in jail. And um, I think, you know, despite what a lot of people say, there's a lot of evidence that as flawed as mass incarceration may have been, the, um, it did have a positive effect on the overall crime rate. Um, but there was this reporter, Fox Butterfield, the New York Times, who, you know, more than once would write these pieces with these headlines that, um, despite falling crime rate, um, was it despite falling crime rate, prison population increases or something to that effect. And it was a complete missing of the cause and effect thing. And, you know, the reason why the prison population was failing was because we were trying to reduce the crime rate. At least that was the argument that people like Bill and, and me made. And now Bill is taking sort of the Butterfield approach to epidemiology, saying that, you know, despite falling death totals, um, we're enforcing, you know, social distancing and stay-at-home orders. And uh, it just messes up the basic cause and effect. Anyway, I don't want to dwell on all of that kind of stuff. Um, um, I get a lot of requests for different things to talk about. People really don't seem to mind. Sorry for the kids on the scooters in the background. Uh, people don't seem to mind that I, you know, don't share my discomfort about repeating things that I've been saying for a long time, and um, they seem to like it. I guess I don't hear from the people who don't, and that's fine. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, one of the things I hear most from people is they want more stuff about, like, sort of the, uh, the intellectual roots of conservatism and all of that. And I don't have anything like in front of me to read from. So it's not going to be polished and all that, but I'll just sort of, I figured I would talk a little bit about my own view of what conservatism is, right? Um, there are an enormous, and I've written about this a bunch of times, there are an enormous number of definitions out there. You know, one of my favorites is Abraham Lincoln's, which just says that, you know, what is conservatism if not adherence to the old and tried versus the new and untried? And that's a basic sort of Hayekian, Burkean kind of point is that certain customs, norms, traditions, procedures emerge over time because they work and they would have, you know, fallen by the wayside if they didn't work. I'm kind of reminded of one of my favorite analogies. Um, 
when I was in college, there was this piece in the New York Times science section, which I used to read religiously, that um, pointed out that they finally solved uh, this riddle that people had known about for a gazillion years since ancient times, but didn't actually have a mathematical formula for why it happened. And, you know, there's the science of mixology, which is a really serious specialty as far as I'm concerned. And basically the mystery was, why was it that big rocks came to the surface of fields um, for, you know, for farmers? Farmers would go out and they'd be plowing this same field for generations and all of a sudden uh, there would be a big rock in the middle of the field. And, you know, where did it come from? Why did it emerge? And all that kind of stuff. And it turns out that it's kind of a common sense thing when you think about it. Think of um, when you open a box of cereal, the biggest flakes are at the top of that plastic bag on the inside. And the smallest flakes, the chum or whatever, um, are at the bottom. For certain stoners, a similar phenomenon happens with bags of weed, I suppose. Anyway, the, the reason for it is if you're constantly vibrating things, and the earth is constantly vibrating, the soil is constantly moving at a tiny little bit, and little openings open up. And um, in those little openings, small things can fall through, while big things can't. And over time, whether it's over weeks or months with a box of cereal or over thousands of years with the soil, these little vibrations, the little things keep falling in and the big things keep getting pushed up. And um, what I sort of took from that is that, you know, over time, uh, you sort of muddle through with uh, making little changes and all the rest. And eventually you hit a moment where a big thing comes up that requires changing in ways that were inappropriate for a long time before. This is the sort of classic Disraelian, Burkean muddling through. As you make the little changes, so you don't have to make big changes. When change is unnecessary, it's necessary not to change, as I think it's the Viscount Falkland said. Um, anyway, uh, that's one version of conservatism, is this sort of gradual change you know people like to say that Burke that Evan Burke was against change that he was a that he was a reactionary that conservatives you know need a truck truckload of brand just to crack a smile and they don't like any changes and all the rest and that's actually not what thought, thoughtful conservatives believe thoughtful conservatives believe that you do things gradually so that you don't make huge mistakes and um, that you know sweeping big transformative changes um, are almost always bound to go wrong. So that's one version of conservatism. I have um, my own slightly different version. I mean, there, it, depends, it always depends on what kind of conservatism you're talking about, right? So one is that sort of temperamental conservatism, and that's true of every single society in the world. There are always going to be people because of either their psychological disposition, uh, their profound wisdom, uh, their self-interest, who are going to or argue that the status quo doesn't need much changing. And that's one of the reasons why uh, Samuel, Samuel Huntington argued that conservatism and radicalism are the only two political orientations or philosophies that are entirely contextual. Um, the radical in every situation wants to tear things down. Radical comes from like the Latin radix, which means roots. You want to uproot things and start over. And the conservative wants to conserve things and not start over. 
And so, you know, this is one of the things that you know, drive a lot of us crazy. Drove my dad to, you know, nuts about how the New York Times and, and people would refer to the most hardline uh, communists in the Soviet Politburo as the conservatives. We, you know, Barack Obama used to talk about the conservatives in the Iranian regime. And there's a point there, right? They're the ones who are most invested in keeping things the way they are. But that brings up the other version of conservatism, or another version of conservatism. There are lots of different versions. And it is more of a political philosophy view, which holds that, um, you know, the conservatism in the Anglo-American tradition is conserving something specific. It's not, conserv- it's not conserving for conservatism's sake. It's conserving something special. And um, so, like, the conservative in the American tradition, which is a point that Friedrich Hayek makes in a much misused essay called uh, Why I'm Not a Conservative, he points out that, you know, in Europe, conservatism tends to be blood and soil, church and throne, people like this guy Comte de Maistre, or de Maist, I never know how to pronounce it. Um, Those guys wanted to defend uh, monarchy, aristocracy, and all of that kind of stuff. The conservative tradition in America wants to conserve the American Revolution and the principles therein. And that revolution was radical. It was a break with the conservatism of the time. And so, like, when Hayek, when people quote that Hayek essay, they quote the headline without actually reading the piece, where he says quite explicitly that he's on Team Edmund Burke. He refers to himself, he doesn't say he's a libertarian, he refers to himself as an old Whig which was the designation that Edmund Burke took. And he says that, you know, in America, the conservatives are the ones who are the defenders of liberty because they are conserving this, conserving this radical, you know, Lockean revolution that I talk about in my book. And, um, and one of the things that so gets so frustrating is that, you know, when liberalism, and when I mean liberalism, I mean the sort of classical liberalism, the liberalism of the early, you know, philosophes, uh, the liberalism of American founding, the liberalism of Adam Smith and John Locke and um, Edmund Burke to a certain extent, um, that liberalism was the radicalism. And it was poised against or pitted against um, the conservatism of the time, which was the er form of statism, right? Throne and altar, where the king had a divine right to rule arbitrarily by his own whims, and um, that the rule of law did not apply. It was man-made law, self-serving law for those in power. And what the liberals wanted to do was have rule of law for everybody. Um, And, oh, cool, I just saw a hawk land. And, um, uh, And the problem was, was that what happened in the 19th century, you had the rise of socialism, And socialism all of a sudden became the new radicalism. And my argument has long been, for all I know, I've talked about this 10 times on this thing and I've only recorded four of them. Um, Socialism took on the veneer of modernity, of progressive, progressive thinking, of being the wave of the future, when I would argue it was in fact reactionary. Um, It was trying to go back to an older view a more tribal view of human cooperation. But anyway, it took on it had great marketing. And people worked from the assumption that that socialism was the new radical forward-thinking thing. And all of a sudden, this put 
liberalism, whether you call it Manchester liberalism or classical liberalism or, um, you know, no one used the word libertarian then, um, you know, limited government, all of these things that are represented by the Anglo-American conservative tradition, they all of a sudden got cast as reactionary and backward looking and the status quo. Marx and Marxism and all that stuff was the, um, the next big thing. And it was going to supplant the economic aristocracy and the old order, which was now this rat, which had been this radical thing, um, that we call classical liberalism. And so for me, conservatism in the Anglo-American tradition is trying to conserve that. So I, where to go with this? First, let me relight my cigar. Hold on a second. So why do I say that um, socialism was backward and reactionary? Well, for a bunch of reasons. You know, first of all, it works from this sort of tribal understanding that there should be no divisions between people. And if you go and read the original, you know, socialism as a doctrine begins know, almost a century, at least 70 years before Marx shows up on the, on the scene. Uh, there's this guy, Babeuf, um, who uh, was, who uh, Josh Moravchik in his fantastic history of socialism, you know, describes as the first socialist. And that socialism had a lot to do with economics, but it really wasn't just economics. It was about social or arrangements. And it was against all divisions between people, all barriers between classes, um, all sources of inequality of any kind. Everything was going to be shared. Well, that is an inherently tribal orientation. That is how our brains are wired in a state of nature, to be, live in little bands where it really is um, a, a collective shared endeavor. It's not nearly as glorious as some people imagine it would be. You know, when I was working on my book, I would read all of this stuff from these anthropologists about, in a true state of nature, how tribes lived and you know if you could no longer chew the leather you were left behind in the jungle or you were killed um there's a really fascinating tendency across countless cultures to um uh kill one of uh sets of twins twins were seen as you know there are whole superstitions that build up around identical twins and part of the explanation for it was that in a subsistence culture, in a state of nature, mothers could not afford to nurse two babies and they couldn't carry two babies. And babies, one of the weird things about humans is that our babies are vulnerable for a very, very long time. And so it was sort of a standard practice in a lot of cultures to kill one of the twins. There are all sorts of things like this. You know, the, you know if, you, if you have a problem with euthanasia today or any of that kind of stuff, the stuff that actually happened in these tribal, you know, uh, communities, um, in prehistory is, is, was, is horrifying. Regardless, we're still sort of wired to have this, um, this fanciful notion of what our imagined past is. And it comes in part from our genetic programming that we're supposed to live in these little platoons, these little tribes, um, and all work together. And the, the socialism that emerges towards the end of the French Revolution um, is sort of an updating on a lot of these instincts, or at least that's what my argument would be. And, uh, and this gets you to, you know, what I've 
written now basically two and a half books on, The Cult of Unity. And I write about The Cult of Unity a lot. I do not, you know, there are, there are few concepts that um, are almost divinized in our culture and I would argue almost every culture, actually I would argue in every culture, um, more than the idea of unity. You know, if we all work our hardest and try our best, we can make this the best yearbook ever. Um, this idea that, you know, if we all come together and work together, there's nothing we can't solve. Um, you know, every man on deck. This, this The cult of unity, which is natural, um, informs so much of our politics. And I don't dislike unity necessarily. That's why I call it the cult of unity. Um, unity can be a great and glorious thing. If, you know, when people come together to save a little girl who's fallen down a well, that's, that's wonderful, right? When uh, sports teams work together, um, you know, and feel like they're part of one whole that is greater than the sum of their parts, that's wonderful. You know, the, the, you know when, when America rallies around healthcare workers and all of that, wonderful. That's all great. But you know who else are unified? Rape gangs. The mob. Um, lo lots of evil is done by groups who are, you know, f formed as a single unified whole. And um, we tend to just, you know, it's like one of these things like censorship. You know, we... We, we tend to exclude the uh, counterexamples and say, oh, well, that's something else. Well, it doesn't work that way. Unity can be good or bad. And part of the cult of unity is essentially um, the war. It's, it's essentially a form of power worship. It's this idea that there's strength in numbers. And as I've said a million times, you know, it's not a coincidence that the symbol of fascism is the fascies which is a bundle of sticks around the handle of an axe. And it symbolizes everyone coming together in, in mighty force to accomplish, you know, the, the will of the group. And um, that instinct informs every form of totalitarianism, most forms of authoritarianism. Um, um, almost every form of collective evil is done in the name of some kind of unity. And um, the great thing about conservatism or classical liberalism or the conservatism that wants to conserve classical liberalism is that it is rooted in um, this idea that the individual is sovereign, that uh, unified control of power is dangerous. Everything about our constitutional order recognizes that power um, left unchecked is dangerous. That's why we have separation of powers, divided government. We have 50 state governments, each of them divided into a legislative, executive, and a judicial branch. Um, we have a Bill of Rights that says the rights of the individual are prior to the rights of the group uh, without, you know, really good reason for them not to be. And uh, the, the cult of unity says things shouldn't work that way. You know, this is why Woodrow Wilson, uh, you know, wanted to get rid of the Bill of Rights while he thought it was holding us back. He thought that our constitutional structure was Newtonian and you had 
you know, he, you can always tell um, someone wants to uh, steal an intellectual base and make an argument for some kind of power grab when they start incorporating the language of anatomy or sort of uh, uh, biology into politics. This idea of the body politic, right, where we're all one organism, which uh, people like Wilson got in huge doses from uh, Darwin and to a certain extent from Hegel. Uh, this idea, and so like Wilson would rant about how separation of powers was crazy because you can't have one organ of the body competing against another organ of the body. And um, that the body all have to work in tandem together under the unified control of the brain, which would just happen to be Woodrow Wilson. And, um, and this aspect of the cult of unity assumes that all good things go together. On the uh, podcast I did uh, with Kyle Harper this week, um, I asked him about the Gnostics, right? And the Gnostics... Uh, we're not going to get deep into Gnosticism here, but the Gnostics play this big role in a lot of conservative political theory um, because, in the words of Eric Vigellin, they wanted to immunitize the Ashkenaz. They thought that you could create a heaven on earth. And um, as I got, as I talked, you should go back and listen to I think my first podcast with David Bonson. Uh, we talked a lot about how the progressives in the Wilson era. Um, were millenarianism, millenarial, I can't even remember if they're, first of all, I can't pronounce millenarian. They're millenarians, and whether they were post-millenarians or pre-millenarians, but whichever one they were, I can't remember now, and Bonson's going to give me a hard time. What they believed was that um, it was the job of progressives imbued with a heavy dose of Hegel to create a heaven on earth that um, you didn't wait, you didn't need to wait for perfection in the hereafter. You could create it with the right institutional arrangements in the here and now. And if you go and you read what the communists were talking about, they promised a heaven on earth. The progressives promised a heaven on earth. Um, and this whole idea of a heaven on earth is this idea where cooperation takes over everything and competition goes by the wayside where we all work together, we hold hands and march into the sunny uplands of history. And this is a very old idea. It's an idea that, you know, has manifested itself in countless religions. It's an idea that um, uh, played a big role in a lot of pre-modern societies uh, and that everyone was just sort of playing their assigned role for the, in the great chain of being, right, which is another sort of pre-body politic argument. Um, another pre-body politic argument was that, you know, societies were like families and everybody in the family has their assigned role and the monarch is the father, right? Or the mother in some cases. And what, what the Lockean revolution, the founding fathers, the, the Scottish enlightenment, they all turned that on its head and said, no competition is good, that the individual is more important than the group, except in, you know, extreme circumstances. And, um, and that the best form of government for assuring liberty was a government with divided powers bound by the rule of law, where we're no longer subjects, we become citizens. Um, and that's the, you know, as I say all the time in book talks, you know, the Lockean revolution, you know, which doesn't entirely come from Locke, there are, you know, Locke is a stand-in for it, 
um, or an avatar. Uh, but the Lockean Revolution holds that our rights come from God, not from government. We're citizens, not subjects. The fruits of our labors belong to us, and that innovation is a good thing. Um, prior to the 1700s, innovation was essentially a sin. You know, in, in, the, in, in Europe, they call it the curitas, questioning the established order, questioning the idea that everyone isn't born into their pre-assigned slot in life. And this was this profoundly radical thing. And so not to repeat myself about all of that, the point, my point I'm getting at is that conservatism is contextual. And in the American political tra tradition or the Anglo-American political tradition, we are conserving this entire metaphysic, this entire idea about how a society should be structured. And I would argue it's a really good thing to protect because it is the first and only thing that created vast amounts of wealth. It is the first and only thing that improved life expectancy, created the scientific revolution in large part, um, uh, got rid of slavery. A lot of good things happened because of this on a, on a pure, prudential, pragmatic, material grounds. It's also, I think, philosophically and morally um, uh, superior to every other system that someone has come up with. And so one of the things that is essential to defending this this metaphysic or this worldview or the system, whatever you want to call it, is what I call comfort with contradiction. In all of these other systems that subscribe to the cult of unity, there is this um, tendency to think any hard choices are bad choices or false choices, that all good things must go together. That if you just have the right leadership with the right ideas and the right arrangement of power, that there are no more trade-offs in anything. And that's a good way to think about heaven on earth. And I mean, in heaven, um, at least in the sort of cartoonish version of heaven, you get, you know, you can have as much cake as you want. And you don't get fat. There are no downsides to it, right? You can have as much fun as you want. You can have as much satisfaction as you want. Um, there are, you, it is a, it is a, existence free of the consequences that this mortal coil imposes on us and that the best we can do is hold them at bay and um, when you go back and you listen or read what fascists nazis communists socialists back when they were had their real you know passionate ambitions rather than the sort of weak tea socialists that we mostly deal with today you know um I think they called the Fabian Socialists the um, water and utility socialism or something like that. Anyway, what they were really trying to do was create a heaven on earth, right? It was this very Rousseauian notion of living in perfect harmony with nature, that there were no impacts to the environment um, that were negative, and you could have, if you pursued economic growth, it was this idea that all good things could go together. And actually, if you read Marx... Um, uh, he very, the, the world he describes at the end of history when, you know, the, the scientific unfolding of, of communism reaches its fruition is very much like the Rousseauian vision of what it was like to be a noble savage. Um, you could do whatever you want. You could work um, on anything that interests you and you could stop whenever you wanted and eat whatever you wanted and hunt whenever you wanted. And there were no limitations put on who you could be and what you could do. 
and it's an otherworldly thing. That vision of, of, of reconciling all earthly contradictions, it comes up all of the time in the language of liberals. I mean, the example I often use is when uh, Nancy Pelosi was trying to sell Obamacare and she was explaining that what it would do is it would prevent, it would, it would eradicate the need to be job locked. And so therefore you could, it was a jobs bill because you could now afford to quit the job you don't like and become a poet if you want. And, um, and so what I mean by the comfort, of contra- comfort with contradiction is understanding that life can't actually work that way, that there are trade-offs. Okay, so this may sound a little different now because I had to move my car because there was a guy starting lawnmower stuff where I was. And one of the downsides of that, I can't remember exactly where I was. But, uh, you know, this is just one of the weird, funky uh, quirks of uh, trying to do this stuff in a pandemic. So anyway, um, oh, I should turn off my car. Hold on. So what the conservative understands, um, and this is, this is not a partisan point, right? I, I think there are, there, are, there are people who call themselves liberals and even progressives who can subscribe to a lot of the things that I'm saying, but it is fundamentally, in, in the sense that I'm talking about, a conservative point of view, which just works from the assumption that you know, life isn't necessarily fair, that um, there are trade-offs in things, and that uh, you that you need to understand that power in and of itself is uh, is a at best amoral, right? It's like fire. Um, fire does wonderful things. It cooks food. It keeps you warm. It also burns down orphanages, and because of that. Um, you need to uh, keep it in check. You need to regulate it. You need to, at best, do, you know, you need to divide it up. And this was the genius of the American political system, which people forget the genius of it now because so many other countries have modeled themselves basically on what we were doing. I mean, the distinction between a parliamentary and a presidential system is meaningful in a political science sense, but in a, you know, first order political theory sense, um, there's not much difference. It works from the assumption that um, divided power, where you check different powerful institutions with other different powerful institutions, is the best way to prevent any one institution from trampling over your rights and liberties, trampling over the efficiency of the efficiencies of the economy. Um, And, but it's also, it's a sort of a deep metaphysical point is that you know, and I've ranted about this on the podcast before. I'm I'm passionately opposed to one thingism. Um, when you try to reduce everything down to a monocausal explanation to a single variable, um, you invariably do great violence to wisdom. I mean, I don't know how to put it in a less pretentious way. Um, you know, if you you know, as I often say, if no one goes into a car dealership and said, okay, I'm here today to buy a red car, right? You buy a car for a bunch of different reasons. It's mileage, it looks, it's speed, whatever, you know. Um, very few smart people 
say, you know, um, my goal is to marry a tall person, right? Um, you, if you reduce something as important as who your wife or husband is going to be to a single variable, you're going to be really unhappy. Um, if you're only, you know, it says a lot about who you are if, if your only, you know, criteria for the woman that you're going to marry is that she be beautiful, then that says something, you know, about you. Um, but it's also a recipe for a really unhappy marriage. And, and there are lots of examples of that kind of thing out there. Um, and, you know, so wisdom lies, you know, one of the questions I got from people is how do conservatives make these decisions about, um, you know, things like the pandemic? Where do you draw the lines between legitimate use of government force and trampling on individual or even community liberties? And um, the conservative or in some sense, the wise person understands that it's a long list. It's a, it, you know, it's a checklist of things. Um, and that you have to understand what the trade-offs are on any given decision. But the role that sort of conservative dogma plays is that you have a very high threshold um, for uh, going against your established principles. I think we all agree that there are all sorts of constitutional norms that would go by the wayside if we were invaded by an alien race. You know, you wouldn't you know, you wouldn't wait for a court to approve your eminent domain to move tanks onto someone's, you know, ranch to, to fight the scrolls or whoever. Um, uh, you know, these things depend on the context. But as a general rule, you know, the conservative says you need to err on the side of liberty. You need to err on the side of, of limited government and all of these kinds of things. And you need a really good reason for going against them. And... And you should understand that when you go against them, or even when you, you know, even in times of peace and prosperity, that there are trade-offs to any decision that you make. Um, this is one of the, you know, fundamental rules of economics is that if you do one thing, that precludes the possibility of doing another thing. If you turn, uh, uh, if you, if you tear, if you, if you cut down some trees to make a parking lot, um, the trees got to go. You can't have the trees and the parking lot, right? There's their trade-offs. And so the argument is, is how valuable are the trees and how valuable is the parking lot? And then you have a debate and you discuss these things. Um, the problem that you get with the cult of unity is that it's a, it's, it's a one thing is thing. It's, it's monocausal. First of all, it assumes whether you're talking about nationalism or socialism or any of these isms, it assumes that there is some leader or some group or some faction or some party that actually speaks for the entire body politic, that speaks for everyone, that is the authentic voice of the real and authentic people. And anybody who disagrees is therefore treated as if they are treasonous or inauthentic or not real Americans or not real members of the community. And so what classical liberalism does what and the conservatism that tries to defend it is is protect this idea that um, we live in a system where you have the right to be wrong, where you have the right to believe different things, um, where you have the right to pursue happiness as you see it. And so 
you know, when people say, you know, what's your definition of conservatism? Part of my answer is it depends because it's a checklist thing. You know, there is no one conservative answer to a lot of different things. And a lot of things that get called conservative that I may agree with um, really have more to do with sort of a party line. Um, they have to do with an ex a, a, a preference of a particular coalition that calls itself conservatives. Um, I got in a lot of hot water a while ago for saying that I think you could be a conservative um, and be pro-choice. Um, and, you know, I'm essentially pro-life. People hate it when I say essentially, but I have some, you know, s slight deviations from the um, official party line of pro-lifers. But, um, uh, but operationally, you know, there are very few pro-life measures that I oppose. I certainly think that Roe v. Wade should go away, that it's bad law and all the rest. But my only point is, is that you can be a conservative. You can see the world basically the way I do and just be wrong. Right. Or and when I say wrong, I don't mean metaphysically wrong. I don't mean objectively or scientifically wrong. I simply mean that you have weighed the variables. You have considered things and come to a different conclusion. And um, that's OK. You know, there is this the cult of unity is very strong on the right these days. I mean, it's, it's always stronger on the left because it's baked into the ideology itself in ways that is not baked into conservatism. But because conservatives happen to be these things called human beings, or as Donald Trump might say, um, I call them human beings, um, there is this, uh, you know, we are still as susceptible to our natural instinctual desires to be part of a group, to be part of the cult of unity. And so one of the great and glorious things, which is where a lot of our prosperity comes from, is from uh, creating all sorts of categories of unity, all sorts of nooks and crannies where you're part of groups at different layers of society. And even though you all internally might agree with each other, um, you might disagree with the larger community. You might disagree with the rest of America. Um, you know, Mormons have beliefs that are different from non-Mormons, but they're still Americans. And... Atheists have beliefs that are different from other Americans, and they're still Americans. This, this ability to sort of understand that in most things people are going to be different is so baked into the, the vision of what this country was founded upon, and that's what I want to conserve. Um, and that doesn't mean that I have to celebrate the people that are wrong. It doesn't mean I have to say um, that their vision of wrongness um, should be imposed on other people. All I'm saying is that they can believe different things, and as long as they're not harming their fellow Americans, that within reason, they can do whatever the hell they want. And we draw these lines um, very broadly to help maximize freedom. And that's, that's, the, that's, that's the basic idea that I want to conserve. And I want to conserve it not just because freedom, I think, is an unalloyed good in and of itself, that liberty is a morally good thing, but because I think it's actually, on a prudential level, the best way to organize a society. And um, everywhere where you let the cult of unity run rampant, you end up immiserating people. You end up creating domestic traitors. You end up, um, as Robert Nozick might put it, um, banning uh, uh, 
acts of capitalism between consenting adults. And that is, um, that's tyranny. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've changed in my thinking about, you know, intellectual history and all these kinds of things is that, um, that a lot, I'm much more like Albert J. Nock on this stuff. A lot of these different ideological approaches um, are really different flavors of sort of the same ice cream. Um, you know, the authoritarianisms of the right and the authoritarianisms of the left, there are meaningful differences between them, obviously. And, you know, a la Gene Kirkpatrick, I would rather live in a right-wing dictatorship than a left-wing dictatorship. But um, depending on the specific dictatorship, uh, you know, there, there are certain dictatorships in history where being a Goldberg is, is not a great idea. Um, but at the end of the day, they're just, they're, they're, they're sort of different kinds of flair on different waiters at tchotchkes. Um, and they have, you know, different emblems and different flags. But what they ultimately want to do is have uncontested power over people uh, to do what they want to do and how they want to do it. And they do it in the name of unity. And they do it in the name of uh, saying that they are the authentic voice of the people, of the body politic, of the Volksgemeinschaft, whatever you want to call it. And that is the natural way to organize societies in a large, to a large extent. And that's what makes the American founding or the Lockean Revolution or whatever you want to call it um, so unbelievably radical in the entire history of humanity. For 99.999% of humanity, many's time on this planet, we, let, we lived in societies that basically followed the model of the big man. One person who um, was ultimately in charge of everybody. And, you know, sometimes they worked with some form of consensus with other power brokers. But at the end of the day, it was, it was one man rule. And every now and then, one lady rule. And, um, and so that's what I want to conserve. There are other versions of conservatism that have to do with certain theological precepts that have to do with, you know, other kinds of approaches to metaphysics. And I'm happy to talk about them at some point, but I think I've belabored this point enough for now. Um, so this week I wrote, uh, two pieces. One was in the subscribers only G file. And then the other one was for the website. Uh, the one for the website came first and it was about how we could stumble into, um, a new, new deal by accident. And, you know, my, you know, the reason why I harped on this by accident point and it kind of distracted some people, including some of my colleagues is that, you know, like we were talking about Marx earlier, a lot of socialist theory, um, and, you know, frankly, fascist theory and, and totalitarian theory in general um, is teleological. It assumes that the, the cold impersonal forces of history and science or the will of God and destiny have foreordained this movement and this form of government to form at this time to, um, you know, change the course of human history, this rendezvous with destiny kind of stuff. And I sort of stand opposed to all of that. Um, I think nothing really is, is foreordained. Nothing is really inevitable. Um, I shouldn't say nothing, but, you know, death is inevitable, um, at least for now. Um, you know, I'm 
maybe I'll freeze my head and find out otherwise. But, um, you know, I reject that stuff. And it's why I have a problem with slippery slope arguments. And I've changed my mind a little bit about slippery slope arguments because there are slippery slopes. But, um, you know, a big chunk of the time, the slippery slope argument is really a tool um, to just simply say, um, you know, we can't change this because if we change this, we'll have no chance, no choice but to change everything else. And it doesn't really work that way. You know, uh, the, the MAGA types who, you know, in 2015 and 2016 were saying all we ever do is fail. All conservatives ever do is lose made a lot of slippery slope arguments and they weren't true. Right. I mean, um, as uh, my friend Ramesh Panuru likes to say, over the last 30 years, this country has become uh, more pro-gun, more pro-life, and more pro-homosexuality. And wherever you come down on homosexuality, that's not my issue. Um, but even if, even if you have grave problems with all of that stuff, two out of three ain't bad. You know, in the early 1970s, it was just simply assumed that the living constitution interpretation of the constitution was the correct interpretation. Um, you know, people had jurisprudential differences about the pace of change or how much precedent you needed before you can do things. But basically, the idea was if the Supreme Court could figure out a way to plausibly find something in there, then it was in there. And in 1975, Reagan started talking about originalism. Um, the Federalist Society, I think, was created in 76 or 77. And since then, this country has become vastly more deferential to originalism, however you want to define that stuff, than it used to. It wasn't a slippery slope. Uh, you know, there were lots of slippery slope arguments uh, during, uh, you know, the McCarthy era, during World War II, during World War I. And yet America reversed course after those events and, and went a different way, which is just simply to say that human agency matters, that a country that actually, um, uh, that if people put the time and energy in to say, even if you do this thing, we're not going to slide any further down the slope, um, matters. That, and it's possible. And these things happen all the time. Politics matters. And so there are a lot of people who really, you know, simply think that um, socialism is our destiny. And, you know, it's like the right side of history argument, which is really a way to get people to give up their political agency. It's just simply say, hey, look, you're going to lose in the long run anyway. So why don't you just give up your objections and get on my side now? Um, it's a, you know, it's, 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 it's the bullying that comes with the cult of unity where you say, you know, the time for debate is over. Well, people who say the time for the debate is over tend to be people who don't really want to debate. They want you to shut up and get with their program. As I always used to joke, we used to have these arguments about partisanship and all the rest, where, you know, I've never heard someone say, we really have to get past these ideological squabbles. We have to get past these partisan debates. So I'm going to give up all of my principles and agree with you. People only ever say that stuff when they want you to give up your principles and agree with them. And if those people don't give up their principles, if they actually fight through persuasion and democratic action and argument and all of the rest, um, they have a chance of winning. As T.S. Eliot said, there's no such thing as a truly lost cause because there's no such thing as a truly won cause. Uh, you know, the fight for liberty begins anew with every generation. Um, and so I don't think we're destined for socialism. I don't think we're destined for a new deal. 
but we could still get one. And the argument I made about how we could get one is that if, and this was back when um, it still seemed like the only people deciding whether or not to open the economy were Donald Trump and maybe his uh, his team of superheroes of, you know, uh, Ivanka and Jared and Larry Kudlow and um, that Orville Redenbacher-ish guy from Department of Commerce and whoever else. Um, uh, and anyway, that uh, my argument was that they blew it, right? And if they just declared the economy is open um, and we got a huge re-spike in COVID um, uh, cases, then the economy would crash even harder if we had to go back into lockdown a second time. And... My argument is, is that if that happened, um, you could very well see Donald Trump not just lose, but lose in the kind of staggering landslide that would give the Democrats the ability to claim a mandate that they don't actually deserve and don't actually wouldn't actually have um, to uh, wish cast our way into a new New Deal. And, you know, and so I pointed out that, you know, one of the reasons why we got the first New Deal was this very carefully orchestrated propaganda campaign that said that Herbert Hoover had done nothing to fight the depression, which was just simply factually not true. And I'm not going to run through all the numbers, but he did, you know, he had huge deficit spending and he did all sorts of things to fight the great depression. But FDR managed with a lot of help, um, to paint Hoover as this aloof, cold, heartless guy who just wanted to see the economy liquidate and bounce back on its own. And, um, and they used the Hoover myth to build the New Deal. And the Hoover myth has sustained Democrats to a great degree. You know, I mean, I still remember these are called, you know, Ronald Reagan, Herbert Hoover. These were George Bush, Herbert Hoover. Anytime that you didn't do as much as Democrats wanted, you were called Hoover, Herbert Hoover. And so I could see if if we get a second round of a major outbreak of this because Trump opened up the economy prematurely leaving aside the issue of whether he has the power or the ability to do that, um, you could see a lot of Americans blaming him for sort of COVID round two um, and Democrats claiming that, you know, Trump didn't care about people and all of the rest. And then you have Democrats come in, maybe with even a supermajority in the Senate, although probably not yet, but maybe close to it. And, And then, you know, they'd be off to the races to create a new New Deal. And uh, because that's what the Democratic Party has wanted to do for 100 years. The history of the Democratic Party has been to basically recreate Woodrow Wilson's war socialism, which was what they tried to do with the New Deal. It was part and parcel of the Great Society. Um, It was um, in much diminished terms part of, you know, what was it, the Truman's Fair Deal. It's what Obama wanted to do with the new foundation. It's what Clinton wanted to do with his new covenant. Um, the fact that they didn't get away with it tells you that, um, that how much politics matters and that people didn't want that stuff. But if we go through a true depression um, in all of this, uh, we, could, we could just stumble our way into a new New Deal because I don't have enough um, confidence in Joe Biden to stand up to the animal spirits in his own party to block something like that. So anyway... Um, and then the second piece was trying to offer a counter argument and the counter argument I came up with, and I, I'm perfectly willing to concede it's got flaws. 
um, was that we should be talking about a domestic Marshall Plan. And one of the great things about the Marshall Plan was that it um, it was not a new deal for Europe. In fact, a big chunk of what the Marshall Plan did was remove regulations, um, broke up cartels. It allowed the sort of natural hunger to get the economy back up to express itself with, with as few impediments as possible from government. Now, there are people like Tyler Cowen who say that process was already underway and the evidence about whether the Marshall Plan um, really is that responsible for all that um, is limited. That's fine. Okay. I'm just talking about how, you know, societies operate around stories. Humans operate around stories and myths and how we um, talk about ourselves. And the, the story of the New Deal, which is full of hot garbage, and I'm happy to get back into that at some point. Maybe we'll do a whole thing about, you know, the myths of the New Deal. Um, nonetheless, the New Deal became a cargo cult for the Democratic Party for the rest of the 20th century and into the 21st century. I mean, there's a reason why AOC, who's clearly in favor of socialism I and mean, is admittedly in favor of socialism, talks about a New Deal because New Deal has, um, uh, you know, resonance in our culture that's, that's not just ideological, but sort of part of the American story. You know, she's not offering a new uh, Stalinist five-year plan you know, she's offering this New Deal thing, which sounds like, you know, every kid who, you know, took civics in high school has been taught that the New Deal was this great and glorious thing. And that's why they're glommed onto it. And they want another one. And they've always wanted another one. Arthur Schlesinger used to talk about how we could get to socialism one day through a series of New Deals. Um, so that this is what they want to do. And so you need a counter story. You need another metaphor or myth or uh, uh, story to tell about a different way to go that also fits into the broader American culture. And what we did with the Marshall Plan was glorious, you know, um, at least gloriously intended. Uh, as I pointed out, Winston Churchill said it was the single most unsorted act in, act in human history. And what we did there was, you know, we're, we're committed. As I said in the piece, we're pot committed, right? We're going to spend a ton of money on this thing. We've already spent a ton of money on this thing. And we're going to spend a ton, ton more to get the economy stu stood up. So that's not the issue. I mean, I, I, I wish we lived in a time where, you know, we could talk about not spending trillions of dollars and certainly not adding trillions of dollars more to the national debt. But if you listen to my podcast with Jim Pithakoukas, it's just necessary. This is one of these times where, um, you know, conservatives need to understand that the normal dogmatic constraints of what we believe um, are insufficient to the task at hand. And so as a matter of just simple politics, we're going to spend a pile of money. But if you have the right metaphor for how we spend it, for the aims of it, um, you can come out of it much better off. And I think a Marshall Plan where we work to get the economy back up and running as a free market economy um, and, you know, there's all of this stuff. Uh, Senator Mike Lee is, has a piece, I think it's by Mike Lee, in The Atlantic, at least he's been touting it on Twitter, about how we're lifting all of these regulations to deal with the pandemic, you know, these licensure things and these um, rules about, you know, whether or not people can, uh, you know, perform, you know, whether doctors can work across state lines if they're not licensed and all that. Maybe this is a time, maybe we can use that stuff to, you know, 
to actually get some real good reforms. I'm not making a crisis as a terrible thing to waste argument. I'm just saying that by you know using the Marshall Plan as a kind of metaphor for what we want to do, the outcome is much more conservative. You know, with the entitlement structure of what a new New Deal or a new Great Society approach does is permanent. It locks in a lot of these, dare I say it, cult of unity type understandings about how the economy should work. And that will guarantee lower economic growth in the future. That doesn't mean we can't do important and necessary things for poor people and people out of work and all the rest. But we shouldn't make it an entitlement argument. We shouldn't make it a new, ever, you know, uh, timeless, permanent program argument. We should talk about, like, helping people. Helping people in the here and now to get back on their feet. When someone's house is hit by a tornado, everybody comes and helps. And maybe they, you know, they help rebuild the house. But they don't give them a permanent right to a new house. You know, you, once you get things back up and running, it's your house and you've got to take care of it on your own. That's the sort of approach that I think conservatives really need to start arguing for now before, and you know, it becomes... Uh, this free-for-all for uh, Democrats to get everything that they want, uh, the, everything that they've wanted for decades, but couldn't get through persuasion and political action and all the rest, can get by exploiting a crisis. So anyway, that's all I've got for today. I hope the audio screw-ups and all that aren't too bad. Um, my family's actually going for an overnight adventure. Don't worry, we're still going to be social distancing. I'll give you details next week. Um, and the doggers are going to have a sleepover at um, our friend and dog walker Kirsten's house, so they're going to be fine. And um, if you check out uh, the G file, which you guys should have by now if you're a subscriber, um, I have a extended metaphor about how uh, the interplay of my animals um, is like the power politics of uh, the China region. Um, so you can check that out. Uh, please, if you can afford it, subscribing to the, the Dispatch would be great. Um, if you can't, totally understand it. Still, if you could help promote us. If you are a paid subscriber, feel free to forward emails that you think other people might get something out of. That's, that's the kind of marketing that you know, we're relying on. If you can promote us on social media, we really appreciate it. You know, we are still this little pirate skiff trying to do something special. There's a lot of um, work yet to be done. We know we're a work in progress. We do read all the comments. Uh, we're trying to fix a lot of things. We're going to, for example, we're still going to, we're still planning on having transcripts of the podcasts, hopefully sometime soon. You know, we're trying to do it in a, in a, in the best way possible. Um, if you could subscribe to the other, uh, dispatch podcasts, that would be great as well. And, um, other than that, be good, be strong, behave. Jonah Goldberg out.
hold on one second. Uh, Nick, and there's another place you're going to have to cut. Someone's revving their crazy car. Um, it must be Seb Gorka. Anyway. Um... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.